0: A gospel lesson this morning is found in John chapter 3. We're reading verses 1 through 22. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. As we come to your word this morning, Father, we ask that you would send your spirit to lead us into all truth and to give us understanding of these words of our Lord Jesus, that we would know what it is to be born from above, to be given understanding by your spirit. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. It was the first book that changed my life, It was published slightly before I was born in 1975. I did not even read the book, and yet it changed my life. It was Chuck Colson's memoirs, Born Again. (laughs) At that point in 1975, Chuck Colson was the special counsel. He had been dismissed and had been sent to prison for the Watergate scandal. And everybody was thinking that his name was done, and so my parents didn't hesitate naming me Charles Colson. In fact, I had other nicknames when I was born. I was known as T.D. Colson because my dad was a well known football player, and so I was to rise to that. That never quite materialized for lots of reasons. But I was also born prior to the new year, and so I became T.D. Colson, tax deduction Colson. <laughs> No one thought anything would come of it. God converted him and messed up my life. Ever since, I've been harassed by phone calls and emails with grand visions of how prison fellowship could be changed. Even since he has died, I still receive these type things. Several people have turned up through the years to hear Chuck Colson preach. Mistakenly. One of the more humiliating moments of my pastoral career was my second sermon I ever public sermon I ever preached, a little old lady came up to me afterward and she grabbed my hand and she goes, honey, I came to hear the real Chuck Colson. Like, just, let's just leave it alone. I didn't even wanna know what was past that. Colson did serve as the special counsel to President Nixon. He became famous for his involvement in the Watergate scandal that shook the country. He was known as Nixon's hatchet man and his character was a dirty one. He was manipulative, he was power hungry, he was conniving. But in 1973, he sat in the driveway with a friend named Tom Phillips. Tom was a powerful man, he was the CEO of the Raycom company and Tom had become a Christian. And Chuck was asking him questions that night. Tom didn't know but Chuck Colson had just learned that evening that he was going to be the subject of an investigation and he knew that his world was coming to an end. Tom read to Chuck from the book Mere Christianity on the chapter about pride and Chuck Colson there listening to those words and discussing Jesus and his claims on his life, he encountered Jesus Christ in a real and living way. Colson's Conversion was a high-profile event. It led to many other public conversions. It was a work of God. And it's easy for us, isn't it, to get caught up in the high-power conversion stories. But really, it's a common story. It's a common story for everyone who has encountered Jesus Christ. That the same miraculous power that turned Charles Coulson to Jesus Christ that came upon him by the power of the Spirit is the same power that turned you to have an interest in him as well. It's the same kind of encounter that took place then and there for Chuck Coulson that takes place for you here and now as you hear him and receive him and believe him. And in the next two chapters of the Gospel of John, we'll find two private encounters Jesus meets a man by night named Nicodemus, and he meets a woman, a Samaritan woman at a well. And in these two encounters, we see what it means to meet Jesus Christ and what that encounter looks like. So what exactly is it that happens? There's three things important for us to focus on from the passage this morning. But the first is that Jesus, when we encounter him, He confronts us with a frightening reality. If you follow with me in verses two and three, as Nicodemus comes to Jesus, says this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus comes in all respect. He was polite, he was proper. He recognizes that Jesus is a teacher that has been sent from God in some way. But Jesus in his first words to Nicodemus says, you must be born again. It's uncompromising. He's not talking about the amendment of a few areas of Nicodemus's life. He's not saying that he needs to take up a self-improvement job in these certain corners of his character that are a bit shady. But rather, Jesus is pointing to the renewal of Nicodemus' entire nature. He's saying that you and I and Nicodemus and everyone who walks upon God's creation, that we have to have a new origin, that we must be born from above. Now, Nicodemus was a devout Pharisee. We know that he was influential and respected. He was a teacher in that community. And you have to think that when Jesus tells him that he had to be born again, that in his mind he is thinking, give me some credit. Look who I am. I am learned in the scriptures. I'm a teacher of Israel. This is my role. This is what I do. Give me some credit, give me my due. And so why exactly is Jesus so insistent about being born again? The answer is humbling but simple. It's that Jesus understands just how problematic we are. If you look back in John chapter two at the close of the chapter, Jesus has been working miracles, signs, And we're given this commentary in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. And many have found these verses difficult because two things are being affirmed. That the crowds were believing in Jesus. They saw the signs and the wonders that he was working and there was some type of belief being invested in Jesus. They were at least interested in him and Nicodemus joins the crowds. But Jesus knows us in a way that we don't even know ourselves He himself knew what was in man. He knew that the crowds were interested in him, but they were not invested in him. That they were going to be polite and deferential, but they were also going to push him to the periphery when they understood what he was saying. They would be respectful as long as Jesus stayed in his proper place, as long as he remained there. You see, Nicodemus is a foil for all of us. Despite all his education and his respectability, he didn't get it. When Jesus begins to speak about being born of water and the Spirit, sometimes those things sound like just new topics Jesus has introduced out of nowhere. But they're not. They would have been a common topic for a teacher of Israel. They come from the Old Testament, chapters like Ezekiel 11 and 36, Jeremiah 31, Isaiah 43, Joel 2. All these major prophetic passages speak of the coming day when God would bring his renewal into the creation. That the spirit of God was going to come and there was going to be water involved. And so Nicodemus was not blind to what Jesus was referring to. He theologically understood what Jesus was saying. He simply didn't find it credible that Jesus was the one bringing this great renewal. Theologically, he affirmed it. Experientially, he was saying no. And so he asked Jesus questions. They border on dense, but in verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And then once again in verse 9, how can these things be? These are the questions that Nicodemus was asking. And you see his focus. He was focused on what he found humanly possible, He was focused upon what he discovered to be within the competencies of human beings. He was focused on what he thought human beings were capable of. And Jesus was saying that the spirit has to give this gift. That what is of flesh is flesh, but what is of spirit is spirit. That it must descend from heaven upon us was what Jesus had explained And that there is no real knowing of the one true living God as long as we hold on to our human competencies, our human capacities, and what we define as human possibility. Jesus has to confront Nicodemus in all of his religious knowledge because he was absolutely missing it that he had to be born again. We must be born through water and the spirit. And this is what happens in a genuine encounter with Jesus is that we meet our utter need. We're brought very low and there is no discrimination. No matter our background, no matter our class, no matter what we've done, that the ground is extremely level before Jesus when he confronts us in our sins and tells us that we need to be born again. We need a new origin. The second thing, though, that we see in this encounter is that Jesus also comforts us with God's accomplishment. As you follow down in verse 10, you'll see that Nicodemus begins to ask a more honest question, and he says, how can these things be? And Jesus begins his explanation, and particularly in verses 14 through 16, we find the high water mark of his explanation of how the new birth would come into the world. Follow with me there. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. How can these things be? Jesus doesn't point us to jumping on the treadmill and accepting a program that by some means we may climb the ladder into heaven and be born again. Rather, what he explains is that there is an omission from God. It begins in the love of God in all eternity. And then it involves the descent of the Son of Man into the creation of God's making that had been corrupted by sin. And then that Son of Man ascends a cross and dies. And then he ascends into heaven to take up his rule. And the Spirit comes to apply it. Jesus brings all of this in a very compact, short sermon to bear for Nicodemus. And at the center of all of that sermon that he delivers to Nicodemus is this idea of the Son of Man being lifted up. You find here in verse 14 a reference to a strange event in Numbers chapter 21 where the people of Israel on their way out of Egypt begin to grumble. And they say, it would be better for us to be back in Egypt. And so fiery serpents came among them. And as they were bitten by the serpents, they begin to cry and confess their sins. And so a golden serpent was made and raised up. And when the people who had been bitten looked to that golden serpent, they were healed and renewed And Jesus says, So shall the Son of Man be lifted up. He descends into the world in order to ascend onto a cross where his glory is displayed and where he suffers and brings an end to condemnation for all who will look to him. That this is the accomplishment of God, that the new birth is freely given, it's not earned or deserved. We don't work ourselves into it. It's not something we accomplish for ourselves. It's accomplished for us by what God has done in Jesus Christ. And the way Jesus tells the story is he brings the cross into the very center of human history. And he says, this is the focal point, the lifting up of the son of man in which he conquers all of your darkness and all of my darkness and all of the sin of the world because not only does he come, not only does he come for your sins and for my sins, Jesus also comes to purify and cleanse God's creation that it would be restored and renewed. Never miss the impact of the words for God so loved the world. That's what God loves he loves his images and he loves his world and he is redeeming it. And he desires to make it new. And through Jesus Christ, he brings all of sin that has corrupted that world into judgment and breaks the power of sin and promises to renew it. It's given through what is accomplished for us, and everything has been accomplished. The Son given on our behalf. This is the second part of the encounter. Is that just as we're confronted with very disturbing realities of our problems, we're also comforted with God's accomplishment. And the final piece here, though, is that in this encounter with Jesus Christ, He calls us to a very simple response. If you follow with me in verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Many people puzzle over this word, over this verse. So the one who does what is true comes to the light. And then his works are seen to be carried out in God. And people will ask the question, well, Chuck, you just said we're not saved by what we do. We're saved by Jesus' accomplishment for us. And it's important to understand clearly what Jesus is saying. This doing of the truth in verse 21 is nothing less than what he's just said in verse 18. Look back up. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the simple response. This is what it means to do the truth. This is what it means to do the works of God. It is to believe in the one who God sent into the world to relieve the world of all of its sin and corruption and pollution. And this is the question We face the crisis when we encounter Jesus. Will we make a decision for or against God's free gift? He freely gives the Son, sending him from heavenly splendor into a world to be lifted up on a cross where he oddly displays his glory to give himself for us. We're simply to believe and to trust. There's an ongoing abiding sense of this faith in John's gospel, as we'll see in the weeks to come. To do the truth is to confess our sins and accept the Son. Nicodemus had this encounter. He met Jesus, and it becomes clear as the gospel unfolds that he was converted. Chuck Colson had this encounter and he was transformed and changed. May we know this encounter to face the frightening reality that God knows us and sees through us, that our frames are weak and we're frail and we're riddled with sin and our problem is far worse than we even know. And he invites us out of the denial that would want to make it somehow less worse and he gives us comfort in his son that he's accomplished it for us and coming into the world and ascending onto a cross that we would then simply believe being born of water and the spirit, invited into the family of God to experience the great renewal of all things. That's the great hope and promise of being born again. It's being joined in God's new creation in all of our religiousness, don't miss the main point. Don't miss the simple truth of being born again. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the great clarity our Lord Jesus brings into a complex situation and for the great clarity that he brings to us today as to what is truly significant and important and all that he has done, and all that he has accomplished for us, that we might be born again. May we not just be interested, but may we be invested in him, believing and trusting him, and doing his truth. We pray in Christ's name, amen.